come and when everybody needs a little nap to get through supper in the evening meeting, but we will try to uh, keep your interest because it's really not hard to do with the material that we're looking at these days. And um, a couple of words about yesterday, um, and this is working partially today, so we're hooked up. That's good. Praise the Lord for that. Um, I would be the first to tell you that most of what I'm giving you is not really new with me or some original thought. Um, not that I'm a totally shallow thinker, but anyway, there's people out there, and I know you, you're very deep thinkers, and I appreciate that you're here to see what we're talking about. So we're sharing with you a compilation and a collection of a number of um, speakers and ideas uh, that have been studying this. And as I was telling one person, and as I said last evening, the seventh and eighth heads, which has not occurred yet, I don't think. Number one, the text says the seventh head is but a short space, and the ten horns have one hour of power with the beast. So these events are happening very rapidly and quickly at the second coming, near the second coming. So the real issue is before the union of church and state with the United States and the papacy, we want to have the extra oil of the five wise virgins because the ten virgins all looked the same. They were church-going, Bible-believing, Adventist-believing people. But five had the Holy Spirit, five didn't. And that's what's so scary. And um, uh, someone said the Lord doesn't commit adultery. In other words, if Jesus wants to be in your heart, he's not going to be there when somebody else is there. So if Jesus is there, you don't have to worry about, I mean, he'll show the rest of them the door, okay? And so it's important that Jesus is there. He, will, he is gracious and loving. He will never force himself in, which is the hallmark of the beast who is going to force you know, God's kingdom will be filled with people who were given the grace and power to love him and they want to be with him forever. That's the difference. Who wants to be here during a worldly millennium? We're, I, I just, we have such incredibly wonderful information to tell people. You know, I was looking at it again, this whole millennial thing. Some people think, a billion and a half Catholics think we're in the millennial, this is all millennial, isn't there? In the, we're in the millennial reign right now. Well, man, if this is good news, it don't look like it, you know? And then futurism is looking for a millennial reign on earth, and the Antichrist and the tribulation and the Jews get converted that don't get killed and all of that. I mean, we, we have such good news, folks. I feel, you remember the story of the siege of Samaria, and the beggars and the lepers were outside the gate. They couldn't get in. They couldn't go. And finally, one night, they said, you know what? We're going to die one way or another. Let's go to the Syrians. And that was the night the Lord sent the chariots and ran the Syrians off. And the lepers came into camp and said, man, this is wonderful food. <laughs> and they hid a bunch of gold and goblets. And they said, you know what? We need to tell these people back at Samaria. And so they went back. 
And that's the way I feel. We've got such incredible news. We've feasted so well on the word. It's time to share it. It is really time to share it. Let's have a word of prayer as soon as they come on in. Loving Lord, we're just so grateful to be here. It's been a beautiful time. The weather's moderated and you can see the beautiful mountains and the lake. Peaceful and quiet here. Come away to rest a while with you. Pray that you will give us wisdom as we look at your word again here and see what's going on. The signs are pointing to your coming. Help us to read them rightly, but more than ever to know you better. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I, I can let you in on one secret that I told somebody else. Um, any of you who do audioverse.org, any of you not know about audioverse.org? If you go to audioverse.org and presenters and look for Norman McNulty, he has about 200 sermons there. <laughs> He's one of their uh, board members. And it's either Revelation 17 or the seven heads of Revelation. I think if you go into YouTube and type Norman McNulty and look for the seven heads, you can see a video presentation of it. So I don't lay claim to being original. He and I talked just before this meeting, and you heard me give some of the caveats about the seventh and eighth head, which is where the discussion is. And, uh, but I highly recommend that. And there are others, but um, here we go. Now, <clears throat> I made these topics up at the request of the conference several months ago and didn't really know totally what I was going to do, but they turned out to be good topics. And today is Evangelical Expectations on Religious Freedom. And I have a couple of disclaimers. Those of you sitting here, I can only urge you, if you're not seeing through me directly, move over because if I move too close to this, then I'm going to feedback. And so go ahead right now, but I, there's not a whole lot I can do about it. And this cord might go a foot or so. But, uh, so I apologize in advance. All right, in the next several lectures, there will be mentioned a number of times of Donald Trump and his relations with and actions for evangelical Christians. You must remember at all times that we are not making any statements on Donald Trump who he is, whether he's a good president or not, or anything else, period. Our interest is in his actions in conjunction with the Christian churches and their expectations in America. Does what he does, his ideology or just political judgment, have anything to do with religious liberty in the end times? So don't go down into the weeds thinking that I think Donald Trump's good, bad, or indifferent. Um, we want to look at what he's doing. You'll have to wait. Okay, that's one disclaimer. There will be a number of points made related to the rightness and wrongness of stands on abortion, selling things to the gay community, withholding abortions or life-saving measures for the mother in hospitals who do not believe in abortions, hate speech, you know all of the hot-button issues. I believe everyone in this room is likely against abortion, and many of these other horrible things 
But there are many other issues being pushed to the front in the guise of religious freedom that are more subtle. You might not believe in doing or saying something, but with an eye on your personal religious freedom, will these current issues eventually impact your religious freedom? Do you have to lose your religious freedom so someone else can exercise their religious freedom? And that's what it seems like we're running into. So we're not, you know, remember I read you yesterday, Jesus did not come to the earth to straighten out things and end slavery. Am I making a little bit of humming again or something? Um, They are recording it for CD, and it'll be on the conference website, or you can order CDs on Saturday night at the conference tent there. Perish the thought, this will go far and wide, but anyway. <laughs> for good or for ill, anyway. All right. Now, Let's review a few of the prominent Christian organizations active today in politics, and there are many of them, and I haven't even begun to name some of them. Evangelicals, Christian nationalism, Christian Zionism, Dominionism, Seven Mountains Theology, Futurism were, were more, uh, there are a, at least a dozen others. I was just looking, Campus Crusade for Christ was when I was growing up, and he's rebranded with the Seven Mountains movement. And there are seven basic um, things in life that the seven mountain theologians want to control. And we're talking religion, church, state, government, media, music, all of that. And I mean, there's just all of, all of these things are being tried. And you must understand that when we talk about some of these, who knows how long they're going to last or what they're doing, but it's the direction they're pushing things that makes the issue, okay? It's the direction that they're going that's important. So we're going to look at some of these. What is an evangelical? That is a real tough question. We're going to, there, there's actually conservative evangelicals, liberal evangelicals. Some of the conservative evangelicals are sort of against well, no, they're for bringing people in and settling refugees. Liberal evangelicals are more get rid of the immigrants, get rid of the refugees. I mean, it's all over the spectrum. But let's look and see how close we are to being evangelical. They take the Bible seriously and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The evangelical faith focuses on the good news of salvation brought to sinners by Jesus Christ. And as you look at their websites... There is one little statement about believing in the resurrection, but the second coming is not one of their big burdens. It's conversionism, everybody needs to be born again, activism, expression and demonstration of the gospel and missionary and social reform efforts, biblicalism, high regard for obedience to the Bible, and cruciocentrism, isn't that a great word? A stress on the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross as making possible redemption of humanity. Now, we can, we can actually believe in some of those. The activism bit, that's what we've been talking about quite a bit, and you're going to see some pretty 
heavy-duty statements in a little bit about what we're supposed to do about that. But they're a vibrant, diverse group, Reformed, Holiness, Anabaptist, Pentecostal, Charismatic, other traditions. Uh, this is straight off of the National Association of Evangelicals website. Here is their statement of faith. We believe the Bible to be inspired. We believe there is one God and three persons. We believe in the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, virgin birth, sinless life, his ascension to the right hand, and his personal return in power and glory. There is a second coming motif, but it's not one of their core things that they push. We believe for the salvation of lost and sinful people. In the, we believe in the present ministry of the Holy Spirit. There's the resurrection of both the saved and the lost. And we believe in the spiritual unity of believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, you see there's the Reformed, the Holiness, the Anabaptist, the Pentecostal, Charismatic. Most Baptists are evangelical in doctrine, but not necessarily in practice of other things. There is an evangelical Methodist church group that broke off from the main, as well as the Presbyterians. There are, um, see if there's some others here. There actually, there is evangelical Catholics. Who do we know as an evangelical Catholic? Come on. Mike Pence. He calls himself an evangelical Catholic. Fifty years ago, that was an oxymoron. It's not now, and we're going to see why that's not. Um, so evangelicals are all over the spectrum. They tend to be a little more progressive, a little more activist, a little more liberal. They're not as mainstream, but there are millions of them. Don't underestimate what's going on in the evangelical community. The churches are known, that are known as evangelical are descended from the mainline Protestant churches of the 19th century. Um, so it's not a hard and fast there are many, many evangelical mainline Protestants as well. So if you're scratching your head, if they have some of these core beliefs, in some ways they're an evangelical. They're generally associated with some type of rapture, then the Antichrist will reign, the Jews will be saved, which is what we consider to be futurism, but many of them are believers in that. Now here's a statement from the New York Times opinion column. Finally... Why in the world wouldn't evangelicals get behind and support a man who not only is in line with most of their agenda, but also has delivered time and time again? The victories are numerous. The courts, pro-life policies, the embassy of Jerusalem, religious liberty issues, just to name a few. He easily wins the unofficial level label of the most evangelical-friendly United States president ever. So that's why 81% of evangelicals voted for him, which was 36% of the vote. <clears throat> well, we can honestly claim with many evangelicals we believe in the Bible, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. But does someone recall Matthew 24, 14? And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. The emphasis on the word gospel, because that's and what does it say in Revelation 14? It's the everlasting gospel. And it says, To fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And you know that famous set of texts. That is our mission. It's one thing to be lovable activists, 
Bible-believing, and Jesus might come again, and we've got to convert people, but we don't know what for. But this is our mission. So I would, that doesn't make us better. It makes us responsible for what the Word has asked us to do, and that is crucial to understand. So we can be friends, and we can talk to these people, and hopefully call them up to this higher mission, which is so important. Well, I had to put this in a little bit. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and many ships, and he shall enter into the countries, shall overflow and pass over. If you've been here for the last couple of days, I have been telling you that we're living right about in the end the king of the south shall push at him. We're right at that colon there. And the king of the north, it would appear to me, is beginning to push back. Now, there are several ways to look at what the king of the north is going to do. A number of us feel that when the king of the north really pushes back with horsemen, the military, ships, and the economy, when, he is in con when the king of the north is in total control of that, that's what we call the union of church and state with the earth beast, the sea beast, and the Sunday law is coming very quickly. So, but that doesn't mean, just like we're warming up to the union of church and state and the healing of the deadly wound, we're also warming up to the possibility that the king of the north is beginning to push. And that's what I think we're seeing on a global prophetic basis as we study all of these things where people from the uh, liberal left are pushing to use religious freedom in their way to restrict these people and over here on the Christian right they're pushing this way to try to restrict things on these people so that they can have their religious freedom so keep in mind here is the dynamic that's going on I do believe I anticipated that slide so we'll move on so as you know this list, we're getting used to it. Supreme Court, gay marriage, denial of prayer in the public schools, denial of placing the Ten Commandments in schools, denial of the crecci at Christmas time in public places. The crecci is the nativity scene. Pay for abortions or not pay, oral contraceptives, all of this kind of stuff. This is what the push is about right now. And we're... We don't know whether to dive in or to stay out, but I urge you, stay out, because the big issue's coming. <laughs> stay out of that one, and we're going to find out why. The Christian right has had enough. From what we learned Monday, they're pushing back hard. It looks like, at this point, the Christian right is winning for a while. Now, this last paragraph is hugely important. How many more pushbacks are going to go on between the North and the South the atheistic left versus the Christian right till the final push for the Sunday law, I do not know. Okay? You understand that? I mean, you know, we all got, well, a number of people were just completely despondent over Obama, and then we've moved to this side, and now people are despondent over it. I mean, get yourself back out of that game because that's not where we need to be. But the pushbacks are going to start getting worse and worse, I do think. Have you ever heard of Christian nationalism? It's incredible. 
This is a term going around. It's actually an old term that's been around for centuries. Have you, you're more familiar with socialism, communism, capitalism, all of those, but Christian nationalism. It's the theory or doctrine that Christians have a divine mandate to assume positions of power and influence over all aspects of society and government. The belief that God gave humans the right to exercise control over the natural world. And you can see one of their, you see what one of their major tenets is? That's from their website. In other words, this is why the nationalists, be they Christian or not, are typically anti-immigrant. Now, I'm not, I mean, we're all a nation of immigrants. You understand that? Pretty much, unless you're Native American. <laughs> if you survive the onslaught of, you realize that the Europeans practiced germ warfare when they got to America? Did you know that? They gave them measles, smallpox, and mumps and killed hundreds of thousands of the Indians, didn't even fire a gun, just wiped them out. You know, so there's a few left, but not many. And, and so this is why Christian, the nationalistic part of this is generally anti-immigrant because they want to keep America white again. I mean, I'm not saying that in any other way, just straight. That's what I'm saying. All right. Their nationalist ideology is founded on the three C's, Christianity, culture, and capitalism. That sounds like a happy ending, doesn't it? If you had all three of those in abundance, you would be, I think it's called uh, prosperity theology, wouldn't it? Uh, that's another ideology floating around. So... A lot of people don't know about that. I did not really go back into the bushes to find out who are all on the boards of these things. You can go to their websites and see. But you know what? A lot of the websites now do not tell you who's in charge of it because they don't want you to know. And uh, the Christian National Alliance believes that America can only be made great again by adhering to these virtues. We assert that our nation's culture is built upon Christian values and the attempt to separate God from American life only serves the destructive element that has derailed America from its original intent. We see capitalism as the best economic system to create and nurture the middle class so that they may be better capable of producing charity for those in need. <laughs> That's an interesting thought on how, why you need to be rich so you can help the poor people there. Um, so do you see how this is pushing church and state together? The very attempt to separate God from American life is destructive. I mean, this is, I have all of the resources on this if you catch me sometime. The Marxist attack on capitalism is similar to their attack on Christianity in that both are pillars of Western civilization and be destroyed in order for the communist goals to be achieved. Do you see why there's such a struggle between uh, Judeo-Christian countries and the Marxist thing? Capitalism has to succeed. Through the th three C's, we seek to stop that destruction and return America to its rightful course. Now, there's not many people on the streets that are this open and know that they're Christian nationalists, but there's many people who subliminally feel this way, okay? They don't really call themselves a Christian nationalist. But we believe that a Christian can no more divorce his personal belief from his political platform than an atheist can. Furthermore, it's a blasphemous act to put the will of God aside for the sake of political correctness. That's sort of interesting. Um, 
I believe it is blasphemous to put the will of God aside and go your way. That's the definition of uh, rebellion, okay? But for the sake of political correctness, and that's what's going on. The left saying, let's be politically correct. And you can't have a war on women, <laughs> okay? <laughs> you gotta be politically correct with saying, I mean, that's what's going on. For a Christian, this cannot be done. A Christian must be a Christian in all things. Well, we could say amen to that. Absolutely. Um, the modern movement of this was founded in the 40s, and it's interesting, it, it had an anti-Semitic component to it. But you can see as this Christian nationalism has been embraced by a wider community, especially those belief in futurism, evangelicals, they are pro-Semitic. They are not anti-Semitic. So that, that issue is dropping out uh, of this notion of Christian nationalism. But few groups indulge in this tradition more passionately than today's Christian nationalists, whose repeated and disputed calls for America to be restored as a Christian nation. When leaders such as Franklin Graham say God has blessed America more than any other nation on earth, they often mean it in a very specific way. We talked about exceptionalism the other day. Namely, that America is somehow special to God and has been since its founding, when it was supposedly built on Christian principles. Now, Franklin Graham is Billy Graham's son. It's interesting, I was reading up on them, and Billy Graham told his son he needed to stay out of this political weed business. But Franklin Graham has definitely begun to identify himself with evangelicals, with this, uh, these different groups. Um, Billy Graham did stay more aloof from that, and he probably knew why. He just wanted to stay out of it. All right, now look at this. Christians have an obligation to mandate a commission of holy responsibility, reclaim the land for Jesus Christ, to have dominion in civil structures just as in every other aspect of life and godliness. But it is dominion we're after, not just a voice, not just influence, not just equal time. It is dominion we're after, world conquest. That's what Christ has commissioned us to accomplish. So this is one group, don't forget. This is not... Everybody's saying that at one time. We don't know which of these groups is going to become preponderant or become in the fore or what they're going to do, but this is what they're saying. And people who run for office and get into local and state legislatures or go to Congress with these beliefs, it colors what they're going to do and they're, what they're going to vote. In the Christian Nationalist Vision, okay, this is the Family Research Council. Listen to... This is a very big business, the Family Research Council. James Dobson and a whole bunch of people. Listen to what they really got upset here. Listen to this. In the Christian nationalist vision of America, non-believers would be free to worship as they choose as long as they know their place. <laughs> when Venkata Chalapathi Samudrala became the first Hindu priest to offer an invocation before Congress. Can you believe that? The Family Research Council issued a furious statement that reveals much about the America they'd like to create. Quote, while it is true that the United States of America was founded on the sacred principle of religious freedom for all, that liberty was never intended to exalt other religions to the level that Christianity holds in our country's heritage. 
Our founders expected that Christianity and no other religion would receive support from the government as long as that support did not violate people's consciences and their right to worship. They would have found utterly incredible the idea that all religions, including paganism, be treated with equal deference. Which is interesting because that's what Catholicism under Pope Francis is doing, welcoming Hindus and gays and every kind of belief and religion into the umbrella. Huh. Um, <laughs> but this just made the family research when that Hindu priest did that at the Congress. That just really tore them up. And it brings us full circle to the heavy overlay of broader American political assumptions on the white evangelical narrative. We started by looking at the emphasis you know, Republican small government, fiscal responsibility, pretty much a given in much of U.S. politics and conclude by recognizing the prevalence of American exceptionalism. For many in this group, it comes in the form of Christian nationalism. So that's just one group that's out there pushing as hard as they can push. Does this sound like the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus came to preach? He, he came and he said in Matthew here, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now what kingdom do you think he was talking about? Now it was the spiritual kingdom that he came, not the physical kingdom. And the Jews had already given up on the spiritual kingdom and they were looking for a physical kingdom. There's a typology there. Do you know what that is? evangelical Christians today are looking for a physical kingdom on earth but Jesus is coming to take us home to his physical kingdom up there so they're looking for the wrong kingdom so very important what to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand facing oppressive British colonialism Mahatma Gandhi justly expressed that the beatitudes spoken by Jesus were the greatest words ever spoken have you heard any of the Beatitudes expressed in what I just read? <laughs> I don't think so. America is no longer culturally and religiously Christian in origin. How does our republic deal with this new pluralism? I mean, this is what we're facing. I mean, when all the Irish Catholics came in with the potato famine and you know, all the Mexicans are coming north of the border and all of this immigration, most of it was... Judeo-Christian in origin. In fact, in the 1800s, there were laws against Asians and Africans coming, period. No immigration to them at all. And so it's only been in, in later times here that we've begun to have a massive immigration from other countries with different religious backgrounds, different cultural heritage. And that's at least one major reason why we're having such a clash between Judeo-Christian principles, who some of these people think has a right to rule the world, the white man's burden, or whatever you want to call it. So anyway, you just got to keep watch and stay out of that fight. Now, we've talked about the Hegelian dialectic, Max. Uh, Hegel developed the idea, all phenomena reflect a conflict between pairs of unified opposites whose joint opposition evolves over time to critical breakpoints where reality qualitatively changes. In other words, over here on the right is thesis. Over here on the left is antithesis. And these people are pushing. And according to this Hegelian dynamic, it doesn't matter if a thousand people or a million people 
or 20 million or 50 million people are killed in World War II to achieve the result at the critical break point their oppositions generate something brand new. And just, I'm stealing my own thunder from tomorrow and Friday, we just saw the Hegelian dialectic at work in the papacy just two to three weeks ago. You remember that Pope Francis had all the bishops resign? Which country was that? I keep Chile. Well, he was talking to one of the gay people, I think it was from Chile, and he says, I love it because God made you that way, and I love you because you're that way. And, it, and underneath the article, it quoted Pope Benedict back when he was pope that says being gay is a mortal sin and it's totally bad. And so here is the Hegelian dialectic working between two popes. Now, Francis is a Jesuit. What is going to be the point? Is it now the Catholic Church is the umbrella that Hinduism, Buddhism, gay community, I mean, he's just sweeping them all in in some fashion and we'll sort it out when we get to heaven, as, as Tony Palmer said, you know. I mean, so you can see it at work at every single level, this fight, and there's a reason why it's going. Okay. Now, this is really interesting. The origin of the Pledge of Allegiance. I didn't know this, so maybe you don't either. Francis Bellamy, a Baptist minister's son, preacher, went into writing. He was a preacher, and he went into writing for a family journal, Journal on the Family. He wrote the first Pledge of Allegiance for the Columbian Exposition of 1892. Can you imagine 4,000 people? Now, it's not the exact same pledge we say today, but it was an original version of it. It was adopted by Congress in 1942. And it's interesting, the Supreme Court exempted Jehovah's Witnesses from reciting it when it was recited in school. That was very interesting. But the Knights of Columbus lobbied for the under God, and Congress approved it, and Eisenhower signed it in June 14, 1954. One nation under God. Was, the under God was not in there before 1954. So we now have the Pledge of Allegiance that we had. So uh, I just thought that was interesting how this pledge has evolved to bring God into it and, and it was the Knights of Columbus. That's very interesting. Maybe it's a conspiracy. Who knows? Now, here is the statement I've been alluding to and we're finally to it. You remember for the last two and a half lectures now, I've been urging you to back off, get out of the fight, don't go down this rat hole, don't go down this rat hole, stay out of it. Now, you could argue what she means by political in this statement, but this is from the spirit of prophecy. The Lord would have his people do what? Bury political questions. On these themes, what? Is eloquence. Christ calls upon his followers to come into unity on the pure gospel principles which are plainly revealed in the word of God. We cannot with safety vote for political parties for we do not know whom we are voting for. We cannot with safety take part in any political scheme. I will tell you that there's one thing she does say to vote for. Do you know what it is? Temperance, total sobriety. <laughs> I don't know what she would say today. 
And she said, if you have to vote on Sabbath for it, go vote on it. But if she's talking about current political issues in this statement, then bury them, folks. We can go out of here with a burden off our shoulders. There is nothing we need to worry about because God is in control. Now, yes, I think all of us are against some of these horrible things that are going on. But have you been called by your mission from God to deal with that? Now, if he has, do whatever he says. I think it will be within scripture. But otherwise, stay out of the woods. Those who are Christians indeed will be branches of the true vine and will bear the same fruit as the vine. They will act in harmony in Christian fellowship. They will not wear political badges, but the badge of Christ. Does that have anything to do with the mystery of the gospel that is to be finished since 1844? This mystery of the gospel that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And if people see you and they see Christ, that's going to take the ball game into a different discussion, isn't it? I mean, let's face it. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the indwelling Christ in a way that we have never experienced. And I'm not talking about mysticism or going off into some fantasy scheme and shouting hallelujah. No, it'll be on your face. It will be there. God's children are to separate themselves from politics, from any alliance with unbelievers. Do not take part in political strife. Separate from the world and refrain from bringing into the church or school ideas that would lead to contention and disorder. Wouldn't that be wonderful? No church or school boards with any political discussions. Wouldn't that be good, Fred? <laughs> Our school board chairman's here from Greenville. So he, he would agree with me. Dissension is the moral poison taken into the system by human beings who are selfish. So there's the root of the situation. All right, now, Ellen White's calling on the brethren. I don't know at what level, local, union, general conference brethren, who are appointed to educate, to change their course of action. It is a mistake for you to link your interests with any political party, to cast your vote with them or for them. Those who stand as educators, as ministers, as laborers together with God in any line have no battles to fight in the political world. Their citizenship is in heaven. The Lord calls upon them to stand as separate and peculiar people. He would have no schisms in the body of believers. I tell my Sabbath school class at least twice a year, if you think that when you're going to heaven and you're rising through the air that the Lord's going to take your political gene out while you're rising through the air, I said, you're never going to get in the air. Please, politics is a deadly poison in the church that destroys everything it touches. So if somebody starts doing politics on a church school board or any kind of board, get down and start praying because it's just not a good thing. His people are to possess the elements of reconciliation. Is it their work to make enemies in the political world? No, no. Don't go out and make a, a big scene. They are to stand as subjects of Christ's kingdom, bearing the banner on which is inscribed the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. When I found these, I said, I just have to share them. I know this is tough uh, listening that we're seeing and things we're seeing here, but this is so relating to what we're talking about. 
if the rest of the churches in Christendom had this, it would solve the problem. We cannot labor to please men who will use their influence to repress religious liberty and to set in operation oppressive measures to lead or compel their fellow men to keep Sunday as the Sabbath. Do you, you, you're not going to be able to please those people. Just quit laboring with them. The first day of the week is not a day to be reverenced. It is a spurious Sabbath. The people of God are not to vote to place such men in office, for when they do this, they are partakers with them of the sins which they commit while in office. And that's like raising tobacco and selling it, and you don't smoke tobacco. You just kill the people that are smoking it. Or you raise corn and make whiskey. You don't drink it, but you're selling the whiskey to people that are going to kill themselves and their families over the whiskey. So don't become partakers in the sins of these things. One more. And you can see it in bold. She says here in 2nd SM 37, look at that whole section. Our people need to be silent upon questions which have no relation to what? Now, isn't, I mean, I can't believe that was in, it's been sitting in the spirit of prophecy all this time, over 100,000 pages. Look at that. We know what our mission is. It's not Christian nationalism. It's not dominionism. It's not seven mountain theology. It's not anything but the third angel message. I mean, I, I just, that's so exciting. All right. Let's see what happens. I hope nothing's gone wrong. If ever a people needed to draw nigh to God, it is Seventh-day Adventists. There have been wonderful devices and plans made. A burning desire has taken hold of men or women to proclaim something or bind up with something. They do not know what, and that's what's going on. They don't have the true message, and they're seizing on anything that Satan is handing out there for them to seize on, and they're going after. Remember that? The strongest argument in favor of the gospel is a mean and conniving Christian. <laughs> I hope not. It's a loving and loving. I mean, that's the way Christ was. He just refused to get into that stuff. And there was as many abuses and corruption in the days of, Jude, of, of the Israelites back in Christ's day as there is today. And the typologies are so huge. But anyway, Donald Trump, how did he do the first year? This is from an interesting article. It's probably slightly left-leaning bias, but they do come up with the main things and tell you what has happened in the first year. So how did he do? Conservative Christians made clear their high expectations for the president they had helped put in office. Notice this from Ralph Reed. You know who Ralph Reed is? One of the big evangelical political leaders. When it comes to his very strong statements on life, on support of Israel, on the Iran nuclear deal, on religious freedom, and on judges, we fully expect him to keep his pledge to the American people. Faith and Freedom Coalition founder and chairman Ralph Reed. So that's the expectation. So here's the list. How did he do? Evangelicals in the White House, the Johnson Amendment, immigration and refugees, Supreme Court, abortion, Jerusalem, and LGBTQ plus rights. How did he do? Let's see. 
Now, when it says just this week, it's been a, several weeks ago now. The Senate narrowly approved Kansas Governor Sam Brownback, conservative Catholic, as U.S. Ambassador for International Religious Freedom. You go back to the newspapers and read about his tax experiment in Kansas and the places in desperate debt. I mean, it's unreal what happened there, but anyway. Brownback shares conservative evangelicals' views on same-sex marriage, abortion. He's one of many high-ranking evangelicals in the Trump administration with Energy Secretary Perry, Ben Carson, Betsy DeVos, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's the daughter of Mike Huckabee, and Vice President Pence. There are, there are Bible studies in the White House weekly that people go, is there anything wrong with that? A Bible study in the White House? I don't think so. I mean, it sounds okay. Um, so, <clears throat> evangelicals are in positions. It's sort of like when Constantine accepted the poor, persecuted, downtrodden Christians into the empire. All of these, you read Philip Schaff and the history of the Christian church, all of these bishops and priests of the Christian early Christian church limping and tortured you know they come in and they sat on the high councils with Constantine and they began to run the government this is exactly what's going on for this cycle I don't know how long this cycle will last or what cycle is coming next but it's there Donald uh, let's see where so in the White House we have certainly now I think the alcohol still flows who was the president that banned alcohol from the White House? Anybody remember? Carter. Yeah. All of the press and everybody was so glad when he was gone because then they could have alcohol in the White House again. It was interesting. Who? No, he doesn't. But, yeah, Hitler was a vegetarian. Yes, it's crazy stuff. Let's move on to the Johnson Amendment. This is Donald Trump at the National Prayer Breakfast. I will get rid of, totally destroy the Johnson Amendment and allow our representatives of faith to speak freely and without fear. Who are the representatives of faith he's talking about there? Preachers, people in the pulpits. Trump's order, first few days, directed the IRS not to enforce the Johnson Amendment, which prevents pastors and churches from endorsing a candidate from the pulpit without potentially losing their tax-exempt status. Now, the IRS has been so inundated with problems that they haven't done much. There's been two or three places, two or three churches that lost their tax-exempt status over this, but it's certainly not being pushed now. Now, <laughs> some of the news articles, well, it's not much of a big deal. It is still a big deal. You remember the trillion-and-a-half-dollar Budget Reconciliation Act? It was in there. The House of Representatives put the revocation of the Johnson Amendment in the budget, but you remember they've got this crazy thing about reconciliation. There are certain things that if it gets in the budget, it requires 60 votes in the Senate. And if they put that in there, it was going to require 60 votes because it was something new that wasn't in the earlier budget. And so they had to pull it out. But hang on, I'll tell you what else is going on. So, the Johnson Amendment is the provision in the tax code since 1954 that prohibits all nonprofit organizations from endorsing or opposing political candidates. Do you know why Lyndon Johnson got this amendment in? 
because he was running for office again and there was an opponent for the Senate seat he was holding who was a Christian evangelical who was getting up in the pulpit and going to start getting votes from the evangelicals. And so he put this amendment through. It went through without discussion. There was no questions, no nothing, and they passed it and put the amendment in, and it's been there ever since. And, of course, history, Johnson got back in. Um, so, uh, of course, Trump vowed to get rid of it, and notice he signed the executive order to defend the freedom of religion and speech for the purpose of easing the Johnson Amendment's restrictions. I just have, I, wrap your mind around loosening the Johnson Amendment to defend the freedom of religion and speech. Now whose, <laughs> whose freedom are they talking about? Who's able to get up in the pulpit and say, all of you who aren't voting for Hillary Clinton tomorrow, go to the other church. I mean, that's literally what could happen. Or all the people who are going to vote for Sam Brownback, stay with us for lunch. You know, I mean, they could get up and say literally anything they wanted to say. And the worst thing about it, if it's not restricted, is that all of a sudden, everybody who donates to a federal campaign now has a tax exemption. Because you can put a million dollars in the plate and say, send that to help somebody get elected, and it would be tax deductible. Now, they've got to do something about that or all of the Koch brothers and everybody else under the sun will be pouring millions of dollars into the 501c3s to get their tax exemption. I mean, this is crazy what's going on out there. Now, you remember Steve Calise? Ten operations after bullet wounds. The miracle that he survived on the ball field that day. House Majority Whip. He's the one that introduced this Johnson revocation of the Johnson Amendment. And uh, he says, for decades, the Johnson Amendment has limited the ability for a lot of churches and religious organizations and nonprofits to express their views and ex exercise their free speech rights and exercise the religious liberty that is one of the hallmarks of our Constitution. Do you see how everything is being co-opted? It's just unbelievable. Now, Scalise's press secretary, bottom paragraph, said the amendment's repeal may, remains a priority. This was after it didn't go through in the uh, omnibus reconciliation bill for the Louisiana congressman, but that the provision fell victim this way to bipartisan negotiations. It's unfortunate that this was not one of the things that made it in, but it's going to be put back. It's going to sneak back through some way or another. I don't know how, but sooner or later, I think they'll get it through. Because it's not just Trump that's pushing it. It's the rest of them. Now we get to immigration and refugees. We've already talked about that a little bit. After calling for a ban on all Muslims entering the U.S., Trump assigned executive orders, and you know about that. And, uh, of course, he confirmed to CBN News he saw persecuted Christians as a priority. So he's going to let persecuted Christians in, but not persecuted Muslims or Hindus. That's basically what's happening there. There aren't many Christians left in the Middle East. They're fleeing Jerusalem, and there's certainly hardly any left in Syria and anywhere to, to go. So, All right. Early versions of Christian nationalism we mentioned contained an anti-Semitic component, but with the increased involvement by evangelicals and fundamentalists, that's disappearing for obvious reasons. They love the Jews. 
Now, it's interesting, some of the mainline church groups who have refugee programs, Catholics, Methodists, Presbyterians, many of those that have been settling refugees, I worked back in the 70s with a number of Catholic and other charities bringing the Hmong people uh, from Laos into America, doing their physicals and checking everything out, and they would go to these families and get placed and that's been going on a long time and a lot of Christian evangelicals do not feel the same way as these do over here who want to limit immigration for their own various reasons so it's a lot of conflict within the conflict all right in the days before the election Supreme Court evangelist Franklin Graham told religious news service he wasn't focused on Trump's potty mouth or Hillary's missing emails uh, rather, he said, it comes down to the Supreme Court. And who do you trust to appoint to the Supreme Court? Well, Trump made a big deal about that, had the Federalist Society put a list of 15 or 20 Supreme Court candidates, among whom was Neil Gorsuch, who is an Episcopalian, which is very close to Catholicism. I don't know what he does on a week-to-week -week basis, but conservatives were thrilled with the Gorsuch nomination and his first vote was seven to two favoring the Trinity Lutheran Church. Remember I told you the other night that uh, the state promised funds to schools, including nonprofit and 501c3 schools, for upgrading their school grounds, playgrounds, things. And so Trinity Lutheran applied to get some playground money to fix their playground, and they were refused. And so they took it to court. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says you cannot discriminate you have to give that church some money for their playground. So they were thrilled. I mean, this was a harbinger. I mean, this is a sentinel event. And as the news will report occasionally under the radar, there have been 39 federal judges, Article Three, nominated by Trump, uh, one associate judge of the Supreme Court, 21 judges for the Court of Appeals, 17 for the district courts, I mean, these appointments, and there's 84 appointments waiting to be confirmed. If you recall, our friend Mitch McConnell from Kentucky basically stopped the court-appointing process for the last 18 months of Obama's term, and there was something like 189 or 200 and some uh, federal courtships open, and they're now filling them as fast as fast as they can. And one of the president's biggest legacies in any administration is how many he's able to get on the Supreme Court and the, the appellate courts, the federal courts, because that changes the tenor of the debate and moves it from either progressive left to middle to the right, and that can stay around. These people are in their 50s, and they're going to be there for 25, 35 years as lifetime appointments. So the federal court system is going conservative, depending on whatever you believe about conservative, <laughs> conservative good, conservative bad, that's where it's going, all of the federal court system. Well, abortion. Abortion laws began to appear in the 1820s. <clears throat> Before that time, abortion was not illegal, but it was often quite unsafe, to say the least. Uh, American Medical, Associate, Medical Association as part of consolidating authority over medical procedures and displacing midwives, most abortions in the U.S. had been outlawed by 1900. And by 1965, all 50 states banned abortion, with some exceptions varied by state to save the life of the mother. 
And along came Roe v. Wade in 1973. Ms. Roe, a Texas resident, sought to terminate her pregnancy by abortion. Texas law prohibited that. So the question, does the Constitution embrace a woman's right to terminate her pregnancy? Which group of the two religious freedom things does this fall into? The one dealing with internal church matters or the one dealing with cultural matters? Falls over here. Over here. But this is interesting what happened. Conclusion, the court held... Uh, Seven to two, that a woman's right to an abortion fell within the right to privacy, protected by the 14th Amendment. The decision gave a woman total autonomy over the pregnancy during the first trimester and defined different levels of state interest for the second and third trimesters. As a result, the laws of 46 states were affected by this court's ruling. So this was a huge ruling, almost like Brown versus the Board of Education dealing with segregated schools. And in fact, if you listen to the debate, one of the, one of the federal judges who was being questioned by the Senate here a few weeks ago would not answer how she would even side with Brown versus the Board of Education, which leaves open the possibility maybe she doesn't believe in Brown versus the Board of Education anymore, and she may attempt to overturn it if it came through her court. So the progressive left is worried silly, to say the least. Uh, some of you may remember that George Tiller was assassinated in his uh, late-term abortion clinic. In two, no, he was at his church when he was assassinated, May 2009. There's been a partial birth abortion bill passed in Congress um, in 2003. The law was upheld by the Supreme Court in 2007. So there's all kinds of things. You remember Operation Rescue in 1984, read by, led by Randall Terry, where they were standing in front of the abortion clinics handing out pamphlets and then they had the bombings and they called the bombings a birthday gift to Jesus. That really worries me. Is it okay to kill someone to stop somebody killing a baby? I mean, do, do you see what's going on here? And we're not even discussing abortion rights or not. I mean, just think about it. These people, usually from the Christian right, think it's okay to kill somebody to keep them from doing abortions. I mean, this, this is pretty heavy duty. Is it okay to make laws which prohibit people from making choices? Does that sound familiar? Does it sound like it's going to be applied elsewhere? Absolutely. Well, let's get on to the embassy. This is very interesting. Uh, presidents have actually, since the 60s, had the right to move the embassy, but they always chickened out because it was going to cost so much anger in the Palestinian camp. Well, Trump cut the Gordian knot and says, we're moving it. And here is Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary with Ivanka Trump, um, unveiling the plaque on May 14th. Now, I don't know if you heard this, but Pastor Robert Jeffries was there from the big church in, what is it, Dallas? Well, before he was asked to offer a prayer at Monday's ceremony marking the U.S. Embassy's move from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, earning the enmity of Mitt Romney, Pastor Robert Jeffries offered tangential insight into why he and many evangelicals think the move is so important. Quote, Jerusalem has been the object of the affection of both Jews and Christians down through history and the touchstone of prophecy. But most importantly, God gave Jerusalem 
and the rest of the Holy Land to the Jewish people. I have been to Israel nine times on archaeology digs, and on Saturday night you go down to Ben Yehuda Street, which is in the west side of the Jewish quarter, very fancy, uh, a lot of tourists there, and it just blows your mind to see a bus of 50 young people unload and come to Ben Yehuda Street, and they line up four abreast and back that way, and the guy had his guitar, and they were singing Jewish-style Christian songs as they walked down this main artery of West Jerusalem, handing out pamphlets to try to convert the Jews. I mean, now that is just mind-boggling to watch that happen, but it does happen. Now, I don't know if they do it every night or if it's in season or, or when it happens, but I actually saw that with my, my own eyes. I will tell you that in listening to Yossi Garfinkel, our dig director, co-director at Hebrew University, there has been a sort of a generalized agreement. If you won't proselyte us, we'll take your money for digging and then we won't say anything bad about you and we'll all get along together. And there's sort of been a quid pro quo there to some degree, but that doesn't stop evangelical futurists from thinking we've got to help convert the Jews because they're going to go through the tribulation and those that make it will get converted on the other end, but they still want to get everybody converted. Jerusalem, he said, is the touchstone of prophecy. That prophecy is the biblical prophecy of the return of Jesus, the beginning of the rapture. You see all this is connected to futurism. Lifeway poll found that 80% of evangelicals believe the creation of Israel in 1948 was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy that would bring about the Christian Christ's return. One more, LGBTQ rights. Anybody remember seeing that picture on the news? <laughs> I went, woo, that's very interesting. Now, look what that, look at that up there. I had to make it small to get the words in. Trump is holding an LGBT for Trump flag. This was a, during his candidacy. He campaigned, quote, this is the article, saying he would be a good friend to LGBT people, James Isaacs, director of ACLU's LGBT and HIV project. Actions speak far louder in word and what he has done has been a wreck. So from the liberal left, this apparently was for vote getting and what else he's been doing is not for vote getting. In the first year, the Trump administration has tried to reinstate a ban on transgender people in the military. That's still in debate right now between Mattis and the Department of Defense. It has nominated multiple people to the courts and elsewhere who have anti-LGBTQ records. It has directed his army of federal lawyers to take the anti-LGBTQ side in court cases. It has done some extraordinarily petty things like refusing to recognize Gay Pride Month, etc. So who's in charge of doing this? Is that the evangelical group in the White House? Is it just Trump's personal pique that he just doesn't like it and he doesn't want to do it? But this is what's happening, okay? Now, Donald Trump declared January 16 of this year Religious Freedom Day to commemorate the 232nd anniversary. We talked about this. The Virginia General Assembly passed the Virginia State statute of religious freedom, the first statue of its kind on religious freedom. Remember Thomas Jefferson, James Madison? However, the seemingly innocuous proclamation which claims to celebrate, quote, Americans from diverse and ethnic and religious backgrounds 
contains references to politicized policies that appeal to Trump's evangelistic base, evangelical base. So uh, it's something here and then something else shows up. Uh, we need to move on. You remember the Ten Commandments, Judge Roy Moore, 5,200 pound stone. Early as 1992, it went uh, all the way to Congress to pass a resolution to allow him to leave a wood carving of the Ten Commandments in his courtroom. And then in 2001, he placed this 5,200-pound uh, stone in the rotunda of the Alabama Supreme Court, and it was finally removed, and he was taken away from his position as chief of the Supreme Court there. Um, so what's the big deal about that? Well, it's a big deal. And you don't know if it's because they truly believe it or because it's an entering wedge to push it in the face of this group over here. Now, listen to this. This is American Family Radio. This year, Dr. Ed Holliday is a dentist, and he's writing about children who are being shot and killed in our schools. I believe now is the time to put the Ten Commandments back into our schools and courthouses. Now is the time to say that too many children have perished and we will do everything possible to protect them, including access to the de facto American moral code called the Ten Commandments. The U.S. Supreme Court's decisions have deprived our children access to the moral code that has guided our nation's citizens since independence. For over 200 years, the Ten Commandments were accepted in American schools and courthouses, but in the past 30 to 40 years, black-robed judges blocked them from being present in public places. Why post the Ten Commandments in our classrooms and schools? Because we obviously have youth who place no value on human life, and that is precisely what the Decalogue teaches. He's going to suggest here that if we had Ten Commandments posted in the schools, we wouldn't have all these shootings going on. And I hope you can see through that problem. I mean, that is just totally... How many of our youth even know the difference between right and wrong? Well, putting the Ten Commandments on the wall is going to make a difference. A very important question that begs an answer is, has prohibiting the display of moral law contributed to acts of violence and lawlessness? Maybe. Our courts have concealed the basis of all morality from our young people for far too long, and we are now reaping the bitter harvest. The Ten Commandments are the foundation of our American laws. Are our children so fragile that the mention of the word God may scar them for life? I mean, this is, this is a dentist, uh, a professional person who's obviously an evangelical in writing, and he's just very upset. But just the opposite is true. Too many children and adults have been harmed because what has blessed and benefited our society in the past has been concealed from the later generations. Well, he's calling for bipartisan legislation. But folks, what I'm saying here is the Ten Commandments are indeed the rule of life and the law of God and his character. But just posting commandments is not going to do it. It's going to be God-fearing parents who love Jesus and his commandments who teach. And like Adam and Eve found out, you can teach, but sometimes they won't do it. <laughs> Cain is a prime example. I mean, you know. So I, I can't help but think this is sort of like, let's get the commandments back in. You know, we'll worry about all the rest of it later. Let's just get it in there. Now, here is something really interesting. An Israeli nonprofit organization announced recently that it would be releasing a celebratory coin in honor of the 70th anniversary of Israel's independence and will feature the face of Donald Trump as an expression of gratitude. This is serious stuff, folks. This is not a funny thing. 
for his decision to move the American embassy to Jerusalem. This has been struck. Now, notice there's another face just behind him. Does anybody want to guess who that is? Who? Cyrus. Cyrus the Great of Persia. What did he do? He sent the Jews back home. And what are they comparing him to? Cyrus and Trump. I mean, this is dead serious stuff, folks. And you think that's serious. Both the current Israeli Prime Minister and President Truman invoked the name of Cyrus as shorthand for an instrument of God chosen to restore the Jews to their promised land. In the flurry of Christian Zionist activity, there's another group, Christian Zionism. In the Trump era, the Cyrus motif still carries weight. Cyrus and the biblical story of Esther are perhaps the predominant typologies in contemporary Christian Zionist thinking. I just want to take one more look at that. It's pretty cool. I guess you could order one. I don't know where you'd get it. All right. Um, I want to get to this one. Let me see how many more minutes we've got. Oh, it's time to quit. You've got to hear about this. Diana Butler Bass is a Ph.D. in Religious Studies from Duke University. She was a one-time conservative evangelical. She's now a liberal Episcopalian, which means she doesn't believe what she used to believe. And I have actually heard her byline. She teaches and gives lectures and does things. And this was in CNN just recently. And why this is important is she gives you a very nice thumbnail sketch of what conservative evangelicals believe and then she makes an important statement. She, she says, for us growing up, the Bible was not just a guide to piety. It reveals God's plan for history, though we learned how God had worked in the past and what God would do in the future. We, we have roots in that kind of thinking, okay? Central to that plan, though, this is futurism, Jerusalem, the city of peace and the dwelling place of God, it was special to the Jews because it was the home of Abraham. It was special to us, she says, because it was where Jesus had died and risen. And we believed ultimately Christ would turn, return to Jerusalem as its king. Jerusalem was our prophetic bellwether. Now look at the bottom paragraph. For many conservative evangelicals, Jerusalem is not about politics. It is not about peace plans or Palestinians or two-state solution. It is about prophecy about the Bible, and most certainly it is about the end times. Now here is a person who grew up as a conservative evangelical, now doesn't believe what she says, but she says millions of people believe this. This move with Jerusalem and that coin being struck and all of that has to do with prophecy for evangelicals, has nothing really to do with politics. It's just a vehicle to promote the prophecy being fulfilled. So... <clears throat> All right, we've got to get, uh, I want you to see this. This is maybe not as up to date, but it's expressive of what goes on. And in fact, some of these kinds of statements that we're going to read are being muffled right now because there's been so much criticism from the left that they just don't want to take the heat. During an exchange with Pat Robertson on the 700 Club, Jerry Falwell explained what he thought caused the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center. Quote, the ACLU's got to take a lot of blame for this. This is Jerry Fowler, who's recently deceased. 
and I know that I'll hear from them for this, but throwing God out successfully with the help of the federal court system, throwing God out of the public square, out of the schools, the abortionists have got to bear some burden for this because God will not be mocked, and when we destroy 40 million little innocent babies, we make God mad. Well, I believe God is very sad, but I don't think God gets mad in the way we do. I, he finishes, I really believe that the pagans, the abortionists, and the feminists, and the gays, and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that alternative lifestyle, the ACL, people of the American way, all of them who have tried to secularize America, I point the finger in their face and say, you helped this happen. Pat Robertson agreed with these marks, but later backed away from them. You recall the Loma Prieta earthquake was in the middle of the porn district, and they said, see there, it's called, you know, it's the sins of this porn industry. And then when Katrina went through New Orleans, they said, see there, it's because of all of the sex trade and all of the stuff down there that that's why. You just don't hear that quite as often. But I think it's going to come again, and that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow. Now, you've got to read this, and then we'll quit. You just heard what Jerry Falwell said. Listen to what the pen of inspiration says from CHS 155. It is on the law of God that the last great struggle of the controversy between Christ and his angels and Satan and his angels will come. It will be decisive for all the world. Men in responsible positions will not only ignore and despise the Sabbath themselves, but from the sacred desk will urge upon people the observance of the first day of the week, pleading tradition and custom on behalf of this man-made institution. Now listen to this. They will point to calamities on land and sea, to the storms of wind, the floods, the earthquakes, destruction by fire as judgments indicating God's displeasure because Sunday is not sacredly observed. Does that sound like what we've just been reading about the Ten Commandments on the wall and what Jerry fell on? I mean, this lady was 100 years ahead of her time. Totally. Now, to be fair, I, I propose to you all that I do believe Jesus wanted to come after the 1888 message of righteousness by faith. I don't know who all rejected it, but enough people rejected it, apparently Jesus didn't come. And when you read the spirit of prophecy, whether it's on creation, evolution, calamities, all of these things, talking about the 144,000, it's crescendoing up into the 1890s, Spiritualism is on the rise. All of these things. There is a two, all of the Sunday laws, the 1888 Blair Bill, all of this were coming together, and then it all crashed. And there was a twofold union beginning between Sunday legislation from the Protestants with the Catholic and the, and the government. But spiritualism never linked up because all of the magicians from Houdini on down and Keller they says, whatever you did in the seance, we can do over here. And it caused a huge decline in spiritualism. And in 1901, Ellen White says, well, you know, because of our rebellion, we're going to be here many more years. And so all of that collapsed. This time, I think it's ramping up. There's going to be no mistake, and it's not going to happen again, and this thing is all going to happen. The threefold union is going to occur Spiritualism is going to be gigantic because it is the tool that Satan uses for his miracles. I mean, so it's coming again. All right, the calamities will increase more and more. One disaster will follow close upon the heels of another. 
and those who make void the law of God will point to the few who are keeping the Sabbath of the fourth commandment. This falsehood is Satan's device that he may ensnare many. So I'm just telling you, um, let me read this and we'll quit. We have covered a number of hot political issues. Are you clear on that? Like our evangelical brethren, we are likewise horrified at what is taking place. How is a Christian and a Seventh-day Adventist to relate to these abuses? We've talked about that answer. Just as ancient Israel experienced calamities for their apostasy from God, look at Leviticus and look at Deuteronomy, for disobedience and apostasy, so today are we experiencing calamities in the same way. You know, I believe we are. Now, Satan is allowed to produce calamities, and he takes many people into perdition or, or kills them in all kinds of weather-related and all kinds of act. I mean, you can read that in the spirit of prophecy. But God's hand is re releasing restraint and things that we have done. I mean, I, I agree. Saying that marriage is now between two people instead of a man and a woman destroyed one of the twin institutions that God ordained in, in the Garden of Eden. The only thing left is what? Sabbath Sunday. So, I mean, as open rebellion is occurring individually and corporately and, and, and nationwide on the earth, things are coming to a close. And when it says in the Psalms, it is time for thee, O God, to stand up, for they have made void thy law, that's where we're so close. We are so close to the seventh or eighth head or both. That's how close. We're just very close. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, you've told us so many things from your word and from your pen of inspiration. We're grateful for this incredible illumination. And we ask that you would guide us how to speak the truth in love and walk softly and tiptoe through all of these abuses and disasters to present the gospel and not to get in the weeds of all these incredible tragedies and they are so sad lord bless each person here as they go forth from this place enjoy the rest of camp meeting and enjoy your presence in our lives we love you in jesus name amen thank you Oh, tomorrow we're talking about clasping the hands across the gulf and dealing with spiritualism. You heard a little bit already. <laughs>